Happy Mother's Day again to all you moms out there. And mom, I know you're watching. Happy Mother's Day. And also happy Mother's Day to my grandmother. I know you're watching. And to my wife, Marie's mom. I don't know where I would be without you ladies and your influence in my life. I, I don't like thinking about it. Um, so we love you very much. And we hope you're having a wonderful Mother's Day, no matter where you are or whenever you're watching this. Um, so as we, as we get into today's talk, I want you to do something scary. I want you to close your eyes and imagine what it was like to be 13 years old. I know some of you are having flashbacks right now. It's gonna be okay, we're all together. This is a safe place. But um, I was a middle school teacher for a long time. Middle, not in a public school, but a middle school pastor at a church. And as a, as a student of behavior, I loved watching the dynamic and I loved watching growth in our middle school students in the years they would come in at 12 years old and they would usually go to the high school group uh, when they were almost 15. And so here's the dynamic. Let me, let me set the picture for you. And imagine you're a 13 year old and you get there and the, room, the lobby is filled with 200 other middle school students. I mean, the amount of tension and awkwardness and hormones in the room was just all over the place. You have some, you have the cool kids, hey, what's up? You have the sixth graders that are just all over the place and they can't decide if they wanna drive a car or play with uh, G.I. Joe or, or whatever it is. They're, they're all over the place, high energy. There's a, a basketball court at our church and especially I, I love playing basketball with the, the middle schoolers before, before we had service because while well, I'm only five foot 10 and I do my best work against 12 and 13 year olds. And as we're playing, I'd pass the ball and a kid would shoot it and he would score and pound on his chest and they would uh, jump up and, and chest bump, and high fives, and um, then, then it was time to go into service. They would make an announcement. All right, everybody, come on in. The doors to the sanctuary would open. There's youth leaders on each side uh, going into the gym where we had service and there were high fives and there were hugs and we would have a game, usually really messy and disgusting. The kids were screaming, trying to de decide who was going to win or, or cheering on their friend that was up in front playing this wacky game. Then, then some, somebody would come out and give announcements and they were always funny announcements, sometimes a skit or two. And then the band would come out and the, the lights would fade down, and the first resounding bass note would go out from this rock and roll style band. And all of the middle schoolers in the room, especially when I first got there, would go from this to this as we started worshiping God. And sometimes it wasn't, it wasn't like a somber song. It's always a, a, a lead guitar part. And the the... The, the contrast between the energy on the stage and then the energy in this middle school congregation, the gap began to widen. And as the leader's energy went up and it came time to, to, to realize that the king of the universe, the creator of heavens and the earth, the sustainer of our life, we're about to lift worship to our God. And then the response was, <sighs> And then during worship, you would see dozens and dozens of, especially the boys, go from this high energy to just, it looked like humans turning into turtles. 
<laughs> just turtling up is what we call it, called it. And and for me, this was a bigger a bigger dynamic than just a cultural expression of worship. I didn't want middle schoolers to to raise their hands just because that's what the grown-ups do. It was my first realization that that we need to lead these young people in the realization that the king of the universe is who we're worshiping and to channel some of that healthy, because I love that our youth group was, was healthy, that we would celebrate, we would laugh, we would dance, we would play together, but to tra- transfer some of that energy into passionately worshiping God uh, was a really big challenge. But as I reflect on that experience, I realize the older I get, that same impulse is in adults too. That we'll get really excited about certain things that we like, but then when it comes time to worship Jesus, sometimes we, we feel vulnerable. We feel out there. We feel, um, you know, we'll, we'll laugh in the church lobby, but then when it comes time to praise Jesus or it comes time to respond, we realize everyone in the room is looking at us. And, and we, we don't want to put ourselves out there too much. And I realize there's like a little middle schooler that lives inside of adults. And sometimes we can get, uh, we can get confused about, about how, we, how we party, how we, how we worship God. So uh, today, as we, as we turn towards our text, I want to set the story up for you and in Matthew chapter 9. And just before our text, Jesus is, is doing amazing things in his ministry. He heals and forgives a paralyzed man. And everyone, the text says that everyone who saw this was in awe of what happened because it was one thing to heal someone, but they're starting to connect the dots that this isn't just somebody who possesses supernatural power, like he forgave someone of their sins. And they're saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So Jesus continues on his way and he finds a tax collector. People hated tax collectors and has the audacity to, to turn to this tax, tax collector named Matthew, who's writing the story and say, come follow me. And on top of that, Jesus went to have dinner at Matthew's house. And in Jewish culture, you did not associate with tax collectors, much less eat with them, saying like, we're equals, we're sharing, we're breaking bread, we're sharing this intimate moment. And and people, uh, the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of the day come up and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus has this wonderful line in there that says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. I came. I came to show everyone that they matter is what Jesus is saying. I came for the broken, the hurting, the outcasts, the outsiders. That's who I'm here for. So this, this week we're starting out something new. We're starting out and we're going to take the next few weeks to talk about different people who criticize Jesus, like those Pharisees. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And the Pharisees weren't the only group that criticized Jesus. He faced criticism from a group called the Herodians. He faced criticism from the Romans and even his own family. I know we're way past that. None of us have ever faced criticism from our own family, right? 
No, even Jesus faced criticism, and some of it was surprisingly harsh. But no matter what criticism Jesus faced, he kept preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, and Jesus always obeyed God. And one of the reasons why we're going to focus on these is that each criticism of Jesus gives us a unique perspective on his life and on his ministry. So this perspective, it shows how people viewed him and, and how they were processing what he was teaching. Some of them were afraid of the consequences of what Jesus was saying. And other people you know, were afraid and angry at him over what he was teaching. Like, because Jesus stirred the pot. He poked at people's traditions. He poked at their perceptions of what it meant to follow God. And second, we learn more about Jesus from why people were criticizing him, criticizing him and how they responded and how he responded to that criticism. His response tells us a lot. So that brings us to verse 14 in Matthew chapter 5. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So it's, it's important to point out here that in Judaism, in traditional Judaism, they were required to fast one day a year. You can find that in Leviticus. I know you're all familiar with the verse. You can say it together, Leviticus 23, 27. I don't have to tell you. Uh, but it's, it's just there in case you need a reference. But, um, but these Pharisees, and it's important to say that John's disciples would have identified with the movement that the Pharisees were in. They didn't just want to follow, follow the, the Torah. They, they kicked it up a notch. They were do, not just doing one day a year for the Day of Atonement. They were doing two days a week. So it's like, we, we want to exceed. And there's, there's, there's some beauty in that heart, uh, wanting to like, okay, here's what God says. We're going to go after God with everything. And not to mention in this, like, so not only are Jesus and his disciples not fasting on this day that the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees are fasting, they're eating with sinners and tax collectors. And it's really easy for us to rush towards like this, this posture that villainizes the disciples of John and the Pharisees. I mean, oh, those guys, they just missed it. No, they, they, they didn't get it. And, and they're so religious and they're so, they completely missed the point. But if we rush towards villainizing those, those people in this narrative, it's a really slippery slope. We can bring condemnation on ourselves. Because I think as we read these stories of Jesus, the way Matthew has constructed these, and all in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the continual questions they're asking the reader is, who are you in the story? Which place are you? Are you, are you the sinner at Jesus' table? Are you one of the Pharisees or the disciples of John? And, and as we move through our faith, there's different times in our life where we identify more with one of these, one of these groups than the other. Sometimes we're, we're both groups at the same time. But the, their heart, their initial impulse for fasting two days a week, it, it, there was a purity to it. But at the same time, it's a fair criticism of them that they missed the kingdom of God right under their noses. Jesus was there. 
And, and their, their question hopefully led to them saying, oh, Jesus is doing something new. But what a contrast. You've got these groups of people going above and beyond what God's law required. And then you have Jesus and his disciples eating it up, drinking it up, telling stories with, with these people that don't even follow God's laws. Oh my goodness. You know, so if we're quick to criticize the Pharisees and, and, and John's disciples and, and just make them monsters, we also have to ask ourselves, do we have blind spots? Have we confused cultural preferences and, and traditions with the true, simple way of Jesus? You know, my, I, I mentioned the, the middle school youth group that I, I was a, a youth pastor at. And so from my culture, and if you really wanna, wanna push all, tick all the boxes of what a, a good worship service is for me, you get a hazer with some nice haze in the room and some lights. You have a, a U2 style music or Coldplay style worship with some chimey guitars. And, oh, and, and of course, before the pastor gets up, there needs to be a video with really cool music and graphics. So he's walking up to the stage like a pro wrestler, ready to like jump into the ring. So I'm being vulnerable here and I'm poking fun at myself, but I'm trying to model how it's really healthy to examine our own perspective and our own preferences when it comes to following Jesus and how they don't always line up with the way of Jesus. Is there anything wrong with a hazer? No. Is there anything wrong with a certain style of music or, or a certain liturgy? No. But when we put those on the same pedestal and on the same, and saying, it's not worshiping God unless you do it this way, we're setting ourselves up for, for a situation where Jesus will probably mess with us. Because Jesus was always stirring the pot and poking at people's traditions. Why do you? Pointing people back to the heart of it. He was always showing the people that God is up to something new. So in this passage, Jesus has been criticized publicly. Why in the world aren't you guys fasting? Look at us, we're fasting. So how does Jesus respond? In verse 15, Jesus answered, how can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. So don't miss, in Jesus's response, there's an absurdity to that image. Have you ever seen someone mourn at a wedding? If you do, that's like, why are they getting married? You think they're happy tears, but then they just cry a little too long and a little too hard. Oh, like you're like, oh, this is awkward. And especially at a Jewish style wedding. Like here in, in Western culture, in our day and age, you have a wedding ceremony and then you have a reception and the reception is, is over after a few hours, depending on the culture, maybe it's an hour or two, maybe it goes a little bit later into the night. And then what do the bride and groom do? They leave and they go off to their honeymoon. But at a Jewish wedding, I'm, I'm like, hey, if we wanna go back to some of the Jewish roots, this sounds fun. The Jewish weddings, was a, they were a party that lasted a week long. The bride and groom hung out 
There was feasting, there was storytelling, there was music, and there were dancing. There was dancing. I mean, and, and Jesus was saying, he's comparing himself like, I'm the bridegroom, and when I come, it's like that kind of a party. Like, have you ever thought of Jesus as the life of the party? Like, I don't know what tradition you can't come from specifically, but that's not usually people's first thought is, oh yeah, Jesus, he's the one that brings the joy. He's the, he's the one, the first one on the dance floor. But Jesus is saying, comparing himself, I'm the groom and I'm, I'm here for my bride, this group of people that I'm gathering to myself. It's time to party. I think it's also important to point out that in the, in the scriptures, more than almost any other, other image that's given for the afterlife, it's described in the terms that evoke a Jewish wedding feast. Is that your picture of the afterlife? Is that your picture of heaven? Or did you grow up with the Looney Tunes version where we're floating on clouds and playing harps and sitting around? I get excited about that, about the Jesus version of the afterlife and how Jesus describes himself. Hey, I'm at the party. Let's get the music going. I'm going to put in the first request with the DJ and we're going to party in, in a real true way and really celebrate in a healthy way. Just let that reality wash over you for a second. Oh, so also, in the first century, especially when it came to Jewish wedding feasts, the, the, the most learned learned scholars of the scriptures said that they had a decree that fasting was not required during a wedding feast. So Jesus is referencing that too. Like, no, 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 we're off the hook. I heard a couple of years ago that Lent occurred during, during St. Patrick's Day and the Pope said, okay, Lent's off for just today. So I'm not in that world, but it was kind of like a there was a first century version of that going, no, 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 we don't fast when the bridegroom and the, and, the, and the bride, when they're there, it's time to celebrate. And it's also telling for us, you know, in, the, in Jesus's response to the criticism, he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't say, well, no, no well, this is the reason. He just admits it. He's like, we're not fasting. No, 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 no. Now's, not, now's the time for a party. But also, he said, there will be a time for fasting. This is where the shadow of the cross falls, falls on the pages of Matthew once again. Jesus is foreshadowing. There will be a time when the bridegroom is taken from them, as we just read. And very early on, we know from church history that Christians did reinstate fasting. They, they had practices of lamenting and, and pleading for Christ's return. Come soon, Lord. But I love the fact that with criticism, Jesus, he, he embraced it. And he didn't duck away from it or dodge away from it. And again, he explained the good news that God is doing something new. And just because something's old doesn't mean it's bad. So at the same time, he was teaching that the old way of doing things was about to be fulfilled. And now we can live in this new life. As Jesus often does, he honored both old and new and pushed people to think differently about the kingdom of God, that it's already and not yet. And then as Jesus is answering this criticism, he supports his answer with two images. 
Verse 16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So imagine you've got a, a, a cotton patch and you want to sew it over, sew it over a, a hole in your garment. Well, once you wash it, the, the new stuff is going to shrink and it's going to make the tear even worse. And, and back in, in the first century, they, didn't, they weren't as advanced as us here in, in, in Western culture, where we pour our wine into cardboard boxes and plastic bags. I mean, we've come so far. Um, no, they, they had goatskin leather that they would pour new wine into, and they would sew it up so it was airtight. And, um, and during the fermentation process, the gases were released, and this new leather was flexible, and it could expand. And just in case you're wondering, uh, some of you have, have taught me about the fermentation process. I didn't know this before the, uh, the sermon. But if you, poured, if you poured new wine into that already expanded old leather, when, once those gases were released, the leather would just burst. So people have mused about these images, and you can go down that, that, uh, that trail uh, as far as you want to go. But I want to point out that these images have something important in common. Jesus is saying that the old and new don't mix. And I mean, when I say old, I mean the old covenant that God made with the people of Israel. There's a new covenant, a new agreement between God and humanity. That's what Jesus was up to. And that's why Jesus came to this world and in a certain point of history, he came to fulfill that covenant. And what that means is that it's a new day. That's what Jesus was trying to, to get across uh, from his example and in his answer to this criticism. He's like, it's a new day. It's God's new day. And the practices for night, those aren't needed anymore. I'm coming to this planet. I'm, I'm here. It's time to celebrate. So the question for you and me is what time of day are you living in? The, the practices of before Jesus aren't needed anymore. Like Jesus is available to you right now. Are you living in the morning time or are you living in the nighttime? Are we living in this new world available to us that's created by Jesus? Or are we living like we used to live? I mean, when you follow Jesus, you need to be a little bit flexible. Maybe you were like me. When I first came to Jesus as a teenager, I had this amazing experience of uh, catharsis. Like, I'm stuck. I need help. And I felt God's peace like wash over me at the altar on a, on a Sunday night service at my church. And my assumption was, okay. Now everything's different, and it was. But my process, my old wineskins and my little teenage brain was that there would be this magic red carpet that flew out and everything would be easy and I would get straight A's with, without even trying and suddenly become the starter on all my sportsy teams. But no, 
life, the, my problems didn't go away. And what I had to learn is that, that now I had this, this reserve of strength available to me because Jesus was living inside of me. But it's so tempting to step back into the old ways, to step back into things where there was a lot more certainty, a lot more easy answers. Uh, it's tempting to step back into a us versus them mentality and uh, like the Pharisees lived in and let's, let's withdraw from all the people that don't get it. We as humans, we want life to fit into neat little boxes. But as we see over and over in the teachings of Jesus, he stirs that pot. I mean, following God is meth messy and it takes a lot of flexibility. I mean, going back all the way to the Hebrews, is they, they were barely out of Egypt before they hit the first few bumps in their path in the wilderness. And they wondered, oh, maybe we should just go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. My favorite part is, oh, remember the lentils. We could go back and get lentils in Egypt. I mean, who doesn't like lentils, right? Similarly, following the way of Jesus into the world of freedom that he offers is scary. It's scary. And it's scary. Like very soon after these words, he was taken away from his followers. Persecution in the church started and there was definitely mourning. But the good news is that there was also joy and peace and power from the Holy Spirit that was, that was given to the first early church. So, that's the, that's the dichotomy that comes with following Jesus. Our problems don't go away, but we can celebrate even in the midst of the toughest times. So, like my middle schoolers, back when I was a middle school pastor, we can, we can go back to that impulse of, oh, I don't know what to do here, so I'm just gonna turtle up and hide. And as adults, we do this in different way. We can numb out. Sometimes with, with unhealthy substances, we can numb out with culturally acceptable forms of numbing out, hours and hours of Netflix or, or just uh, media, unfiltered media stuff, just, just so we don't have to think. But the problem with numbing the pain is that you, you can't just numb on one end of the spectrum. You've got pain and joy. And when you numb one, you reduce your capacity to experience the other end of the spectrum. So, when we follow that impulse, and even though it's scary, okay, I'm gonna deal with this pain, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to face this difficult situation head on, when you do that, you actually increase your capacity to experience love, joy, peace, patience, those, those positive end of the, emo uh, of the emotional spectrum. So, for me, like that's the, the, the greatest paradox of following Jesus because you and I are surrounded by a world with pain. You and I are surrounded by a world chock full of anxiety and violence and scary things. And at the same time, we have the source of joy and resilience and peace that lives within you. So it's not that, that we're human beings and all of, our, all of the solutions are just magically inside of us somewhere, 
But when we, what I'm saying is when we give Jesus control over our lives, and when we're filled with God's spirit, we're the new temple of God. God lives inside of us. And that source of strength that we need is right under our noses. So if we're going to follow Jesus, the way of Jesus is embracing all of life with the knowledge that we don't have to face it alone. That even, even it's possible that even in the midst of grief and loss and sorrow, Jesus has a party there for us. And I know it doesn't make sense, but Jesus is willing to guide us. He's our companion. He compares himself to a shepherd that guides sheep along. So I want us to do something with this. Because if you're like me, you know, even, even preparing this, I felt like, oh, there's a lot of things in my life right now. They just don't feel like a party. And I don't want you to feel like, oh, I've got to put on like a fake party vibe or something. No, like don't numb. Like if there's, if there's something painful in your life, name it. But at the same time, don't give up hope that Jesus can guide you through this. So I want us to do an exercise together, very simple, uh, with, with, with this concept that Jesus talks about. He is the good shepherd. The sheep shall know my voice. So I want you to focus here for a second. Maybe you're, maybe you're making breakfast or dinner or something. I want you to put down the spatula. Maybe you're on the other tab and you're shopping for something on Amazon. Uh, switch over to this tab. And if you're driving, please keep your eyes open. But I want you to look at these words and read along with them and let them wash over you. And the very simple words, a lot of, a lot of you know them already. In Psalm 23, the scripture says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those words... We never graduate from those words. I need those every day. We never graduate from those words like we do graduate from middle school or high school. Like We need those words, and they're still true today. And I dare you this next week to read those words first thing in the morning when you wake up and the last thing before you go to sleep. I, I challenge you to memorize those words, because it, it brings together those two ideas. The, a table in the presence of your enemies. That's the kind of life Jesus came to bring, and it's counterintuitive. And, I, I, and speaking of counterintuitive, I have one more challenge for you this week, and it's based on something my pastor did right after September 11th. You remember there was a, 
for some of you, this is going back really far. Uh, there was right after the the terrorist attacks in 9/11. There was also an anthrax scare. People were getting anthrax in the mail, and and people were worried about. It was a really scary time. People were wondering what's going on. Some people were putting plastic on their houses and trying to like air make their houses airtight, kind of things in case there was a, a chemical attack. And I remember seeing those stories on the news and my emotions were so raw in those weeks and months that followed that attack. I, I needed some answers from my pastor and, and he was talking about it as we were, as our church were lamenting as a church, as, as the reports of these people were scared and, and there was so much uncertainty in our culture at the time. And my pastor preached a sermon called, if my house is wrapped in plastic, my family and I will be inside dancing. How's that for a sermon title? I mean, wow. But it was this, this call for us to find a time in the midst of grief and uncertainty to dance is an act of defiance against fear and anxiety and all of those negative things with Psalm 23 in mind, with the words of Jesus in mind saying, you know, why, why would you mourn when the bridegroom is here. So there's always that truth, no matter what you go through. If you've given your life over to Jesus, the bridegroom's always with you. So no matter what you're going through, there's always the potential for a party, even if it doesn't feel like it. And sometimes we have to, even as an act of defiance, do a little dance. I don't want anything to get in the way of you following Jesus. So maybe for you, this is an act of rebellion. Whatever kind of music you like, whatever music moves you a little bit. And maybe you're not a, a dancer, but maybe you're a head bobber. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're a dad and the only dance move you have is, is the old school point. Whatever it is for you, whether it's in public or in private, take three minutes and prayerfully dance in the midst of your circumstances as a, as, a, as a way of putting your trust in Jesus, saying, I don't know what's going on right now, but I'm going to declare that you are with me and, and we're, gonna have, we're gonna have a little dance party together. And uh, I'm gonna do the same with my family this week and uh, I'm gonna introduce them to some early 90s hip hop, uh, MC Hammer, and uh, I'm gonna bust out some of my dance moves. And I hope you do something similar in a way that works for you. So I wanna pray for you that, that, that this perspective will wash over us and that you will go into this week knowing that the bridegroom is with you. And I pray that your eyes will be opened uh, to see and, and to experience that Jesus is with you even in the midst of everything you're going through. So let me pray for you. God, will you please, uh, for everyone who can hear my voice right now, Will you please empower us and open our eyes to all the ways that you are around us. Empower us to see how you are bigger than anything that we, that we can face. And God, as you open our eyes, help us to see you bringing the dawn that, that we're not at the beginning of a long, dark night, but that you are at work. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray you will infuse us all with your hope, with boldness, 
and with wisdom to face the coming weeks and months that are ahead of us. God, we need your help to do this. May your words be true, that you are a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. That's the truth that we're standing on today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you. I can't wait till we're together again. Until we are, you can always reach us at sgbic.com. We love hearing from you. And until we are together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.